What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Zach Bush. Dr. Zach Bush is a gut and microbiome expert. He's a specialist in the field, and I was super, super pumped to interview him, actually, because I've been hearing him on a lot of other people's podcasts, a lot of big podcasts that I follow. Um, and it was a really, really good opportunity and just an honor to have him on my show to break it down for us and to really touch on everything. I mean, we talk autoimmune disease and tolerances, um, probiotics and why they aren't what you think they are, which was a big shock to me. Um, the environment, things that are poisoning our food that we don't even realize and how influential that actually may be. Um, how to fix your gut, uh, with whether you're using his product Restore, which I completely stand behind and personally take, um, to just the way you eat and how your diet is programmed. We talk about athletic performance. We talk about so much regarding gut health. It was an extremely valuable and just informative podcast. So I'm really excited to have you guys listen, and I think you're really going to enjoy. Before we get into the show, I want to give one quick shout out to my program, Functional Muscle. Um, I have been, I think I launched this about almost six weeks ago now, and we have hundreds of people running it now, even trainers running it with their clients and them personally, which is an honor to hear. But I'm starting to get real good feedback. And I'm starting to get a lot of feedback regarding numbers because it's been some time now since people started running it and we're seeing a lot of numbers on the scale drop. We're seeing a lot of PRs in the gym go up. So I'm super pumped to be getting messages and emails from clients and people running the functional muscle program or people inside the private Facebook forum talking about the numbers and the results they are getting in the gym. And I want you to experience those results too, of course. And so do you. That's why you're listening to the show. So if you want a chance to run functional muscle yourself and see what the hype is about, click the link in the show notes. You can get your copy of Functional Muscle today. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show with Dr. Zach Bush. So why don't we just start by... Uh, basically explaining how you got into gut health in the first place. Yeah, it was not a direct route for me. My background is in internal medicine, which is kind of general adult medicine. I'm a medical doctor and uh, subsequently went into endocrinology and metabolism, which is the study of hormones and how they regulate everything from uh, the coordination of our organ systems to how we utilize fuel in our bodies, the mitochondria, how we produce ATP, how we build muscle, that kind of stuff. And so that uh, background was uh, kind of what I was doing clinically. And uh, through indirect routes, I got into connecting the dots between the hormone system, the uh, nutrient system, the nutritional sources in cancer cells and how they, they function and how they die. And so that was kind of my background. And then in 2010, I ended up leaving academia and started a nutrition center and uh, with the goal of really not just only treating chronic disease, but really finding uh, a pathway towards optimal human performance and health. And so that uh, clinic has now been running for eight years. And a couple of years into that process was finding that a lot of my patients who were trying to make this transition from kind of the typical American diet to really high nutrient, high quality, real food, were experiencing worse inflammation. category of really asking the questions of, well, if that's the case, then what, what is the gut? And, you know, I've been told it's just this tube that transits material into the 
this. And so it turns out that as a medical field, we have a very poor def definition or concept or understanding of what is gut health, what is the gut's role in everything from the immune system to cancer and beyond. And so that was kind of the indirect pathway to it. Okay, cool. So what, why don't you explain um, what the microbiome is? Because we hear a lot about the microbiome and we hear a lot about the gut. And my listeners are predominantly fitness professionals. And I think this is a big key that's missing in a lot of just general practitioners for the fitness world and trainers and coaches. So if you could break down and just give a layman's term definition to what the microbiome is and why it's so important, that would be awesome. Sweet. Microbiome is the ecosystem that is around us and in us involving the microscopic environment. And so the microscopic ecosystem is bacteria, fungi, parasites, and ultimately viruses. The amount of this biology on planet Earth is truly extraordinary. We are almost non-existent as a human species when you start to look at the amount of genomic information, the volume of biologic life in this microbiologic environment. So this microbiome or ecosystem of the, the microscopic is really starting to be clear that life on Earth does not happen apart from the support system, the foundation, and maintenance that we receive from this microbiome. And so that's the definition of it. What is its role or what is its, is the science that I think is rapidly emerging. And so our science group over the last five years has really been focused on the intelligence of the gut lining which is a little bit of a new concept, right? So we can come to believe that, okay, like an organic garden or like the compost that you would put into a garden, it makes sense that the worms and the bacteria and the fungi would need to break down those components in a, in a garden to get it into the plant. And in the same way, we can imagine, okay, all these microscopic bugs need to break down the, the burger or whatever I just stuck in my mouth all that microbiome is going to need to break that food down into an organic soil that my roots, i.e. the villi that re reach from my intestinal lining out into my food environment, my roots need to be able to absorb that same organic material. So that's historically been kind of the limit of our understanding of our belief system about the gut. What our group is now doing is saying, okay, well, it's one thing to have soil. It's a whole nother thing to intelligently be able to absorb what you need out of that soil and keep a barrier system up so that your immune system, which lays right behind your gut surface, is not overwhelmed by everything you put in your mouth. And the reality today is that that is the condition. We have an epidemic of what we call leaky gut, or gut permeability, resulting from our chemical food environment. And so our group has been trying to understand what are the regulatory pieces that are in play to make for this intelligent gut membrane that will bring in what we need and keep out what we don't want. And how, what are the biggest influences, both negatively and positively on that? Because I know there is so much going on with different crops and soil and, and then just artificial foods that we are consuming, processed foods we are consuming. What do you find is the biggest problem that people are, are uh, dealing with? And then what's the best solution to minimizing that or healing that process? Absolutely. So the biggest challenges we have right now to that gut intelligence is uh, the toxins that are in our food. And they primarily are in the form of herbicides and pesticides. These are chemicals that are added directly to our food chain in different forms and fashions. The one that gets to be introduced in the largest volume to our food is Roundup or glyphosate is the active ingredient therein. 
Roundup became famous in the 1990s when Monsanto successfully genetically modified our staple crops, corn, soybean, sugar beet, genetically modified these crops to be sprayed directly with an herbicide. Up until that moment, farmers had to be very choice as to where they were going to spray that, that chemical because it would kill the plants. It would kill the weeds, which was helpful to the farmer, but it would also kill their crop if they sprayed it on it. And so up until 1996, we were very choosy about where these toxic chemicals were used on a farm. Suddenly, with the, the advent of genetically modified foods, we were able to directly spray our food chain with these chemicals. And that's where all, all hell broke loose with this gut lining, gut intelligence piece. And so John Gilday is one of our brilliant PhDs. He was the first one in our group to really identify the fact that Roundup and glyphosate was acting at this, this root cause level of, of inflammation, this root cause dissociation of self. And so that disruption of the gut membrane suddenly with the erosion, the direct effect of Roundup eroding the tight junctions, they're called like the Velcro-like proteins that hold the billions of cells that, that will compose your small intestine or colon or your sinuses. That membrane that holds you separate from the outside world is suddenly broken apart by Roundup. Roundup is now so ubiquitous in our environment. It's a water-soluble toxin. And so it's gotten into our water table. It's gotten into our river systems. It's evaporating into the air we breathe, and it's falling on us on, on the rainfall. Current, as, uh, current studies are showing that 75% of the rainfall in most agricultural environments in the U.S., um, which would include things like California and the whole Midwest, the South, 75% uh, of the rainfall, 75% of the air we breathe is contaminated with Roundup. So we have this one chemical that's permeated everything from the air we breathe to the water we drink to the foods we eat. And with that kind of promiscuous chemical, we see this constant damage to those tight junction Velcro proteins that hold our gut lining together. And so we're all becoming more and more permeable or leaky as we, as we go through uh, life in America. And I mean, for, for the typical American, that sounds pretty scary. As you can imagine, it's, it's literally everywhere. How do people start to work on getting away from that glyphosate that's in the air, in the water, in everything? So the closer you can get to your own garden, the better you're going to be. And so if you don't have a garden or can't have a garden or you live in an apartment, grow one plant if you can in the window, whatever it is. So, you know, the real message here is the closer we can get back to food independence or the more food independence we can build into our daily and weekly lives, the, the stronger we're going to be as human beings. And so in 1945, at the end of World War II, we, there was a huge campaign called Victory Gardens. And so both in Europe and the U.S., everybody was encouraged to grow their victory gardens because there was a shortage of food for the troops. And so not only were they providing for their own family, they were shipping their chickens and, and produce overseas to our troops. We were growing 45% of the entire American food chain in our backyard gardens in 1945. That today, we have some sort of belief that we need chemical farming and these giant one million acre corn farms to feed us is complete bunk. 70% of the whole population of the earth today, I think it's still actually 80%, 80% of the whole population of the earth today is fed by peasant farmers that are growing gardens that are not much bigger than a backyard garden. And so most of the world continues to eat from the backyard. Only 20% of the world food chain is supplied by these big chemical monsters that feed the US. We're the main consumer of that artificial kind of environment. 
So we not, we need not listen to the dogma or the, the fear monger saying, oh, well, well, we'll all starve if we don't have chemical farming and genetically modified crops. We were not starving in the United States in 1995, the year before we debuted genetically modified crops. One of the misperceptions about GMO is that it increases crop yield. We're currently filming a documentary on the Mississippi River along all the agricultural environments showing that these farmers that 1996 went to genetically modified crops never once in those 18 years of growing food saw an improvement in crop and said they saw the opposite where they, they continue to get loss of return of fewer and fewer bushels of soybean per acre every year that they grew genetically modified crop. And the reason for that is obvious, is that Roundup is actually not patented as a weed killer. It functions to kill weeds, but it's patented as an antibiotic. It kills the microbiome. It was repatented as an antifungal, antiparasite. It basically kills everything that you would want to, to be thriving in the soil. What this means is that over the last 25 years of chemical farming in America, where we are dumping now four and a half billion pounds of this chemical worldwide, we have killed the infrastructure of the soil itself. And so uh, again, how do you escape this nightmare? You start growing in your backyard or you, you join partnership with a local CSA, Community Service Ag Agriculture Program, or you, you shop as much as you can at the farmer's market every weekend in your, in your town, or you develop a relationship with a local farmer at, uh, that might be 50 miles from your home or something. So there's many ways as, a, as an individual or as a family unit to really reconnect to our agricultural system. Our farmers are desperately seeking that relationship because they are getting screwed over by the chemical farming industry. These farmers are getting paid $40 an acre for a year's worth of work. So they'll grow their crop to maturation, they sell that, uh, will yield them $40. That means uh, you know one family working a 400 acre farm, which is kind of at the limits of what two or three people can do. 400 acre farm, two or three people, they're getting $40 an acre. They will make $14,000 a year as their total income. So they have to do something above and beyond that. So usually they're trying to raise some cattle on the side. They're trying to do something to make ends meet. They're desperate for solutions other than chemical farming because the chemical farming is not returning a product to them that's valuable on the in the marketplace to give them anything. If we reconnect us as consumers to our farmers, I really believe strongly we're going to make some success. We have an... Uh, an uh, support system. If you want to go to my website, it's the Zach Bush MD. We have a nonprofit forming around this documentary called Farmer's Footprint. And uh, we're, you can sign up just to be on our email list so that as, as the opportunity arises, you can join this force. And what we're looking to do is have, have consumers sponsor an acre of farmland a year. It only costs $40 to sponsor an acre of farmland. And what that allows is for us to create a safety net for our farmers who are failing under a chemical farming industry to make this shift towards real food production again. There's no question we're gonna do this. We have to do this for the survival of our species. The amount of disease we have on the planet right now has never been imagined before, let alone experienced. Currently in our children under the age of 12, 46% of them have a chronic disease diagnosis. 46% of our children. That is typically asthma, allergies, uh, seasonal or food allergies, eczema, skin disorders, uh, major depression, attention deficit disorder, autism. These are the diseases that are now epidemic. And so nearly half our children with a chronic disease, if we 
compare that to the entire population, cradle to grave in 1960, only 4% of the population had a, a diagnosis of a chronic disease. So we've gone from 4% of the population to 46% of our children affected by chronic disease in just this short period of 40, 50 years of, of factory farming. And I don't know the studies about other countries, but I mean, that's astonishing to hear that that's like the rates at what is going on with chronic disease and autoimmune disease and intolerances. Are other countries the same way or is this like a localized thing in the United States? We're leading the charge for sure because we created the problem. We created, you know, Monsanto is a U.S.-based company. We created Roundup. We created the genetically modified crops. We've been exporting that now across the world. In 2007, Roundup came off patent, and most of the glyphosate, which is the, the genetic five of the big chemical industries in the U.S., make glyphosate as well. And so uh, we have a whole world buried in glyphosate from many, many different sources now, which is meaning that China is rapidly keep catching up. China actually now... Um, there's concerning reports that their diabetes rates are probably higher than ours. Uh, and that's terrifying because they have a billion people. And so if we have one in three Chinese with pre, pre-insulin or pre-diabetes, their, their public health situation is about to be a disaster over the next decade. We see the same thing in Australia. Australia got buried in, in Roundup in around 2007 to 2010. They now are beating us in the United States for rates of asthma. In the U.S., about one in eight children with the asthma there is one in four. And so in these other kind of industrialized countries that are, are adopting widespread use of this chemical are immediately seeing you know, massive ramifications in public health, most of all in the children, but across the whole spectrum of the adults as well. So obviously a big point that you're making is shop local, farm and, and grow it yourself if you can, which makes sense. Is there certain food groups or things that people should be watching out for as well? Because some people can't shop local or they can't farm themselves. Are there certain food groups and things that people need to stay away from in general that are more toxic or more have more pesticides and, and glyphosate on them? Or is it mainly just everything, if you buy it from the stores, is pretty contaminated? Yeah, so everything in the grocery store is going to have some residue of, of Roundup at this point on in the United States if it's grown here. Um, most of a lot of our food is is imported from South America, especially seasonally, right? So the winter time, we bring a lot of our produce up from Chile and Argentina and Mexico and the like. And so those countries historically had less chemical residues than than we had in our crops in the U.S. That is rapidly changing now. Um, I think Chile is probably still one of the cleaner countries in, in South America, um, but Mexico is definitely drenched in a ton of herbicides and pesticides that are toxic. And so, unfortunately, there's really no such thing as clean food at this point. But there is huge degrees of harm and, and less harm. And so a really useful website is actually from the Environmental Working Group. It's a nonprofit that works out of Washington, D.C. They're a big watchdog organization for the industry. They do a lot of lobbying for environmental changes. So EWG is their uh, program. If you go to, I think it's ewg.org, I think is our website. Um, but you can also just Google Dirty Dozen Clean 15, and that'll bring up their, their website that speaks to what are the 12 fruits and vegetables that are going to be the most toxic or going to have the most uh, residues of the Roundup and other chemicals. And strawberries are almost always at the top of that list, but some surprising ones are also on that list. Potatoes, cucumbers, 
these are very high in residue. And so the dirty dozen are the ones that you pretty much always want to make sure you're buying organic. If you can't find it organic, select something else. Instead of the cucumber, go buy a zucchini. Uh, they also list the clean 15, which are the ones that even in under conventional farming can't be sprayed and are not sprayed with, with herbicides and pesticides to the same degree. So the clean 15 are the ones that, whether conventional or organic, are going to have very low residues. And so that can help you shop intelligently like, okay, spend the extra money on the strawberries. You can save money and get conventionally grown zucchini or whatever's on your, your clean 15 list. And the nice thing is they update that list pretty frequently because farming practices do change. And so every year or two, they'll update the, the, the dirty dozen and clean 15. Okay. So I, I like that. I'm going to put all those links in the show notes, by the way, this is golden for people to actually have something to take away from. What about things like dairy and legumes and, and uh, grains or gluten, things that the paleo movement um, or a lot of times just the elimination diet in general have really focused on to help prevent or eliminate autoimmune diseases, intolerances like eczema and things that you mentioned already. Um, do you have any thoughts or, or do you avoid dairy and gluten? Or is that one of those things where you go over to Europe and you can have grains and you're totally fine now because you're not in the country? Yeah. Yeah. We, wheat's definitely a good example of that, that European phenomenon. I think that that benefit, that European benefit is going to diminish quickly over the next few years because they're now spraying their wheat with Roundup just like we do here. Uh, especially in the northern countries there. So um, it's going to depend on where you are in, in Europe as to whether you're going to tolerate the wheat products over there or not. But by and large, people go over to France all the time and they eat a croissant and they can't believe they don't have brain fog, bloating, and all their usual gluten sensitivity experiences. And so certainly I think if you go abroad, you're going to have a lot broader uh, selection. Dairy is a, something that I personally and scientifically, you know, from my own experience, really feel that there's no such thing as like a good reason to eat dairy, right? And so dairy is definitely devised for the, the intestines of small animals. And so it's biologically programmed. Your, your milk dairy or your um, cow dairy is, is really programmed for rumen intestinal lining. Rumen have a much different gut than we do as humans. They're non-acidic. They have no stomach per se. They have these four pouches very different digestive environment, completely different microbiome, really, you know, uh, something that's extremely unique. So that, you know, now watch a baby cow born at maybe 40 pounds, that thing's going to drink exclusively breast milk now from the udder of, of mom for about six months or even less, maybe two to three months. And then we'll start being predominantly a grazer. And then, you know, after it stops uh, nursing, it's going to be on grass the rest of its life. And it's now we're going to touch milk again. Well, that's every species on earth. No species on earth continues to consume dairy after infancy, just us. The reason we do that is because it's a great drug. It has this extraordinary capacity to turn on our, our, the narcotic pathways in our brain. So it, it has this opioid narcotic effect to, to calm down, take the edge off of pain or, or uh, anxiety. So everything we call comfort food typically will have dairy in the mix as this drug-like effect. And so we've learned to use dairy as a good drug, um, but it's not a nutrient source that we, we should really ever experience as humans, let alone as adults. Uh, drinking some other species milk uh, doesn't make any sense at any point. And then consuming that in huge volume, like we do in the US, we average 34 pounds of cheese per person per year, not even counting milk, just looking at cheese intake. Uh, you contrast that to other countries, <coughs> excuse me, 
Other countries are looking at you know more like four pounds of cheese per person per year in the developed world. Um, you go to Asia and it's like zero. They don't consume milk dairy at all. So uh, we're very unique in, in the amount of this kind of drug-like comfort food that we've built into the American food chain. And it's a disaster biologically, very inflammatory, extremely stressful on the kidneys, very stressful on the liver. Um, so, you know, we've got to, I'd say dairy's out. You asked about legumes and things like that. I'm a huge fan of the plant-based diet. It all comes down to preparation. So um, a lot of the foods that are removed from like the GAPS diet, and a lot of the autoimmune diets are rich in alkaloids, which are the main medicines that our food should carry. But when we have a messed up microbiome, those alkaloids can be inflammatory to us. And this is what we kind of discovered in our clinic was things like kale and Brussels sprouts and you know, all the superfoods that we know exist. They can actually, they carry a lot of alkaloids. And so if you have a screwed up microbiome where you're not prepared to take care of those vegetables and fruits and those complex alkaloids, you can have bloating, you can have more of the side effect kind of effect from those alkaloids. And so um, I don't, I don't damn anything in the, in the plant world. It's just basically how good is your microbiome and what do we need to get your microbiome ready to do that? And a lot of this has to do with introduction, right? So if you can't tolerate, you know, some sort of, you know, legume or, or grain or whatever you feel like is doing, I would encourage you to introduce very small amounts of that a teaspoon or a tablespoon with, with a couple meals a week, you know, so small amounts introduce it so that you're encouraging your microbiome to, readjust, learn how to deal with these nutrients again. We need to relearn, you know, real microbiome complexity. And that's getting increasingly hard because again, we're consuming antibiotic all the time. And probiotics are just not cutting the cutting it. Probiotics are adding a tiny, tiny bit of, you know, uh, species diversity to the gut. You might have three species or five species in your typical probiotic. If you're taking 35 or 50 billion copies of the same bacteria every day, you're doing nothing to diversify this ecosystem back to the you know, 20, 30,000 species that it should have. And you keep overemphasizing two or three species. And so the tools that we're given are historically quite poor. What about meat? Now that you're talking about Roundup being in the water, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on meat, just because now that we're on this food topic and like what foods we can and can't tolerate, um, is meat an issue? And, and we have, you know, there's a big vegan and vegetarian movement. And now the, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the carnivore diet is like a thing now where all they eat is meat, which sounds pretty crazy. What are your thoughts on meat? Is meat okay? Is meat safe? And are there any ways to go about getting meat? Because obviously meat's the highest protein source. So I know a lot of the listeners, even myself included, focus on grass-fed or not, meat to get our protein in of the day. Yeah, protein is an interesting journey. Uh, it's probably the biggest misperception we have in, in fitness. It's the biggest misperception we have in nutrition is protein. Protein is not supposed to be our major staple. Uh, you know, protein is actually very carefully packaged in nature with complex carbohydrates and fat. When we start to strip away the fat and complex carbohydrates and just eat meat protein, the density of that, and again, the narrowness of that is very detrimental, I think, over time. And so uh, a carnivore diet is fantastic if you're starving and you eat a big piece of meat, you, you kill that lion and you, you feast on that for two weeks and then you go back into fasting because you're out of meat and then and you find some nuts and then you find some veggies and you eat that again. As a part of a more complex diet, 
it, it, it makes sense as to why we evolved to have you know, the ability to take in large quantities of meat. But keep in mind, again, that was always consumed with the whole animal. If you go over to Africa right now or any other native community, when you see them butcher an animal, it's not about the, the muscle meat. It's about the glands. They're going after the thymus. They're going after thyroid. They're going after liver. They're going after kidneys. They're going after these very fatty tissues. They're going after much different spectrum than just the, the, the hamburger that we're used to consuming in the United States. I think we're doing ourselves a huge physiologic and nutritional disorder, dis if not, you know, just misperception at least, of this belief that just the steak is, is this great source of protein. Protein as a whole is very difficult for the body to deal with. Remember, protein's not a fuel. Protein has to be broken down into sugar. And so you have to convert the protein at the liver down into glucose eventually. That is a very demanding process and it's very acidic. And so the, the acid load that you get from just consuming meat is quite high. Now, if you're super healthy and you're doing other things in your way to kind of give yourself the reservoir of antioxidants and other kind of hydration quality that you need to handle that protein load, you could probably do that in the short run. But I have seen innumerable athletes and bodybuilders over the years that have stage three chronic kidney disease from just eating too much protein. So not good for the kidneys. It's certainly difficult for the gut lining to handle. If we just take a look at transit times across the gut, you start to get, get a sense of what's going on. We did this study at the University of Virginia where we took uh, young, healthy 18-year-old college students and we gave them uh, a complex diet uh, um, with uh, pizza, right? And so we had like the supreme pizza. It was good quality pizza. It wasn't Domino's. It was like, you know, and make crust, you know, try to like not make it as noxious as it could be. But the point was we were giving a fair amount of dairy and a huge load of protein in the form of uh, the meats uh, with that meal. It took 14 hours for these young kids to transit that meal across the small intestine alone, let alone getting through the colon and all of that. And so 14 hours is a daunting reality for your immune system that's having to deal with this slow transit time of this high protein density that's moving slowly through the gut trying to break down. What it means is that by next breakfast, you're already putting food on top of a gut that hasn't even passaged dinner through to the colon yet. And so now that you're eating bacon on your breakfast and everything else, and then lunch, you got a big chicken breast, and then dinner, you're eating pork chops. Pretty soon you realize the gut has never gets a rest in the American protein dense diet. That is an incredibly rapid way to age. And we see this in the bodybuilding world. You look at a bunch of 60-year-old bodybuilders, they have aged. Their skin turgor is, is decreased. They, they look like they've aged at an accelerated rate because they, in fact, have. Because the protein load that they've been taking in has taken a huge toll. So let's, let's dive back a little bit back to the probiotic then. Because we have a lot that you've said and kind of taught us on what goes on in the gut and why it's so damaged. But you you very briefly touched on a probiotic and I was actually kind of surprised and I've actually heard you say this before. So I really want to touch on this is it sounded like you're not a fan of probiotics. So probiotics are huge in the country to be this, this wonder pill for helping your gut improve, but you're saying the exact opposite. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. 
So, you know, the probiotics are an interesting industry in that there's almost zero science behind this entire $30 billion industry. Zero science. There's like three NIH studies that were done on something called VSTL number three, which had three different strains of bacteria and specific to Crohn's disease, which is a specific autoimmune inflammatory bowel disease. And they showed only short-term, you know, benefits from that. And so you now, you know, you look through the literature, it's very difficult to extrapolate anything other than supposition. And the reasons are a couple. Number one, I mentioned already, you aren't diversifying your bowel flora by taking a micro, uh, a, a probiotic. You're maybe adding three, five species to thousands of species. And it's imbalanced, right? 50 billion copies of the same bacteria every day. That's never, that's not physiologic. That's not something that would normally occur in human history, let alone you know, in some sort of health program. And so it's, it's a misshoot just as far as biodiversity goes. But then the other side of the probiotic thing is, is around you know, the, the lack of care for the fungi and the, the viruses and the parasites and these other organisms that should probably be in the mix. The, the way in which we used to introduce bacteria to our gut through our nutrition was through fermented foods. And fermented foods was a staple in America up until the 1950s, and it remains a staple worldwide today. But starting in the 1950s, when we got widespread refrigeration into play, we stopped fermenting our foods. And that was a huge mistake as, as a nutrition industry, because the fermented foods are very unique in that they really grab hundreds or thousands of species out of the air. And it's not just bacteria. There'll be fungal species and all kinds of things that will settle into a wild ferment. Today, in the, in the probiotic industry, it's taken over the, the yogurt and the kefirs and all of these different fermented things that are on the shelf. They are, by and large, made by a probiotic. So they no longer do these open-air, wild fermentation processes that can take weeks. Instead, they inoculate cabbage and water with an enormous amount of acid, a single species of bacteria. And suddenly, they call it sauerkraut. You know, they sell it as, you know, some fancy product is $12 for a little package of cabbage that probably costs 30 cents at the most to make. And so they're marking up this huge you know, profit share by giving you something that doesn't even resemble what would have been a fermented food on your plate in the 1950s. So going back to wild fermentation, and you can find wild fermented brands at the high-end natural food stores, but by and large, you know, if you're at a normal grocery store and you're getting a can of sauerkraut, there's no living bacteria even in there. And whatever was done to that cabbage was probably done more by vinegar and other kind of refrigeration techniques rather than a true fermentation process. And so, you know, we, we need to go back to these roots. And it's awesome to ferment, man. My favorite one is kimchi. Making your own kimchi, it's an amazing journey because you can just tailor so much taste and flavor into that that compound and the longer you ferment it, the more different the flavors pull out of it and everything else. And so you can find your sweet spot is like, this is what my body needs right now when you do your own fermentation. One powerful thing to get off the grocery store shelf rather than a probiotic would be miso soup. Miso paste is a profoundly powerful tool um, to getting this. Miso paste is made usually from soybeans, red beans, or some other sort of bean. And they're fermented for a year at minimum, the US brands are usually a year ferment. Uh, they're brought in from Japan. But the Japanese, if you go over to Japan, they don't even export their seven-year misos, but they'll ferment for seven years their miso before they serve it. That's an incredible intelligence of microbial life and all of that that you're adding into that, that broth. 
when you prepare miso, you should never boil it because you'll kill all the bacteria in there. And so you want to do a low temperature preparation where you kind of simmer it up to maybe 150, 170 degrees and then consume it that way. The way in which you can do this is boil water uh, or a vegetable broth if you want to do it that way and then let it cool down for a few minutes and then just stir in a, a, some cold miso paste into that uh, and then you'll have a, this live biome to consume. So wild fermentation, things like miso to get back into real introduction of the bacterial biome. We've developed a product over the years that's sterile and it has a much different approach. This is called Restore. Restore was our breakthrough that we found from the soil from about 50, 60 million years ago. We found a family of molecules and we ended up extracting these from fossil soils. These are made by bacteria and fungi and parasites when they break down materials in the soil or ideally in your, your gut environment. When they metabolize or compost the food, they create these little carbon molecules. And these carbon molecules look kind of like snowflakes. Each species kind of makes its own little variants on these carbon molecules, each one looking a little different than the next. And what we discovered with, out of this soil intelligence was that we could create this liquid circuit board kind of environment in the gut lining where there was so much information exchanged through these carbon molecules that the bacteria were speaking to one another. The fungi were speaking to one another. Bacteria could then clear a parasite that was overgrown in the intestine. There was this big ecosystem shift that would happen when we didn't put in bacteria or fungi, we just put in the communication network that they produce. That was a major breakthrough for us in our clinic. That was 2012. We launched nationally with that product in 2014. It's become one of the fastest growing sectors in the natural health uh, world. It's a sterile, non-probiotic gut intelligence uh, compound that helps really sustain diversification rather than narrowing of the biome like you would see with a probiotic. So, and this is a great option for anybody who feels like they need digestive enzymes, probiotics or anything, or is just struggling with, would you even say food intolerances? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if your immune system is overwhelmed by anything, if it's just bloating and IBS stuff, you're, you're showing that you've got leak, you've got permeability, you've got unregulated uh, nutritional intake happening. You need to get that intelligence back. And so what this communication network does is it supports the natural tight junction system, that Velcro that binds your gut lining, binds your blood vessels together as well, the endothelium within your blood vessels held together by the same protein, blood-brain barrier, same protein structure, your kidney tubules that do all your detoxification, same protein structure. So what we've shown under the microscope again and again is that this compound, once it goes into play, supports the human cell to go and make that extracellular matrix Velcro to hold this, the human gut membrane into its intelligent source that it should be. And then you can traffic material intelligently through. And so it's got all of these levels of benefit. And so on the one side, it helps diversify flora by supporting that kind of species to species communication. On the next, it helps support this intelligent membrane that should be dividing you from the outside world, protecting your immune system. Then we've shown that this material from the bacteria and fungi actually speaks directly to the mitochondria, which look like bacteria, but they live inside your cells. And so we have this cool thing that we're showing now where the microbiome is talking to this micro microbiome, these tiny, tiny little organisms inside of your cells to change the way that they manage stress and fuel production. So we're getting much better mitochondrial uh, usage of energy by getting this bacterial fungal communication network back into play around the human cells. So we have all these different levels that this, this uh, kind of microbiome communication network is affecting positively.
it sounds almost like this would be great for a, an elimination diet. Like earlier you spoke of actually introducing small, small amounts of the food that you removed um, to get used to it. And there's a lot of people who do, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, elimination diets, you cut out pretty much everything for 30 days and then you slowly reintroduce things to find out which one you're intolerant to. Are you saying that your gut should be able to remove an intolerance to anything as long as you remove and reintroduce and then supplement with something like Restore? Yeah, so Restore is a perfect thing to do in that, you know, to start in that period of time. So what you want to do is elimination diet is fine, but remember all you're doing is you're palliating a damaged state. You know, you're just saying, well, I'm, I'm sensitive to all of these things, so I'm going to eliminate those. Well, that doesn't make you insensitive to them at any point. Right. That's the problem with elimination diets, by and large, is now you're stuck. Now your microbiome is going to get more and more narrow, channeled to the things that you think you can eat, and it's going to leave out any bacterial or, or fungal life that would have supported uh, the, the intake of your intolerable foods. And so Restore is there to kind of reset that whole microbiome environment, as well as the gut membrane, as well as your immune system, ultimately help give this, establish this kind of new foundation for you to work from as you, you introduce foods back in. I'm a huge fan of diversifying diets. And I can't tell you exactly when you can add exactly which thing, but you, you'll find very quickly, we've had you know, tens of thousands of, of uh, customers worldwide that have reported this back saying, you know, look, look I was intolerant to this, now I'm not. You know, this was my symptom, now I'm not. It's not that Restore is fixing anything. Instead, it's just giving your body back its natural you know, kind of maintenance effect that it should be doing all the time. It should be able to keep track of, if you're eating kale, we want to absorb these things and we want to make sure the insoluble fiber that's in there never gets into the body. So that is a microbiome in relationship to this gut lining relationship that the Restore really supports. We've also demonstrated amazingly that Restore is so effective at supporting the tight junction extracellular matrix that actually functions as an antidote to Roundup. And so all of this chemical you know, that we spoke to in the first uh, 20 minutes of this podcast, turns out that once you get Restore into that membrane, you can see that chemical and you don't see that loss of membrane potential. And so we've, we've shown that over and over again, not just in cell culture, but in thousands of patients uh, worldwide have enjoyed that restoration of this intelligent membrane and a resilience to a chemical environment that is really remarkable. What would your argument be towards people who, because my understanding with elimination diet is basically a way to determine what the problem is versus like you said, you're not going to really get rid of what's going on with you, but at least it tells you what the problem is or what's really affecting you the most. Um, what would your argument be for the people who do the elimination diets and see such a big change in their chronic disease or autoimmune disease, or even people like Chris Kresser, who's eliminating a lot of stuff and, and removing these different things that people are going through. Um, are you saying that you don't have to go through that route of cutting all this stuff out? Well, it's super helpful to do it. It's super helpful to kind of understand what are the things I'm most sensitive to. And, what, and But instead, what my fear is with an elimination diet is you now attribute your autoimmunity to legumes or wheat or whatever it is. That's just a symptom. The autoimmune condition is a symptom. Whatever, you know, natives of sensitivity, whatever food you're sensitive to, that is a symptom, not a cause. The cause is a loss of microbiome that should be intelligently consuming that fruit, vegetable, legume, whatever it is. And so you know, keep in mind as you do an elimination diet, don't blame the food that you find yourself sensitive to. 
recognize that as an opportunity to return microbiome to the system so that you can deal with that. Okay, that makes a lot more sense, and, and I, I totally get it. So, um, moving forward, like let's touch on before we cancel, like uh, what the gut has a role as far as like metabolism, hormonal, um, nervous system, things like that. Because again, there's a lot of fitness entrepreneurs and fitness enthusiasts listening to this show. Their like number one job title is fat loss, right? Muscle gain, performance. But I've read a lot too that the gut plays a massive role in hormonal, nervous system, things that contribute a lot to body composition or performance. Like what's your take on that and like working with an athlete to improve that stuff? It's enormous. It's enormous. So as you know, like muscle recovery time is really critical as to what your autonomic nervous system is doing. And so your parasympathetic nervous system is a very critical component of muscle recovery because it is responsible for releasing or sequestering resources of energy. And so you want your parasympathetic to always be in a state of, oh, and, you know, got plenty of energy coming in, no reason to sequester calories, no reason to store anything. We can put it right into muscle metabolism. We can do all of our energy into repair and muscle metabolism. That's what you want to happen. If your parasympathetic is shut down and you're in a sympathetic overload, your vagal tone is really high and you're in this kind of fight or flight state of the gut, you're going to tend to sequester away resources, everything from amino acids to uh, your uh, fat storage and calorie storage is going to be much different in that sympathetic fight or flight state. And so when you have a stressed gut and you have disruption from chemicals or, or alcohol or any of these other toxins that can hit tight junctions, they include things like uh, common in, in your uh, listeners would be anti-inflammatories. And so NSAIDs like ibuprofen and Motrin, those destroy tight junctions. Alcohol destroys tight junctions. Obviously the Roundup and, uh, destroys tight junctions. Gluten, if you've been exposed to Roundup, gluten becomes a sensitivity to that tight junction. And so all of these features um, are really unique. Um, you know, Natus is for you to be injured, and if we take care of those, it frees up this, this ability for you to do muscle metabolism, muscle recovery time. The relationship to the neurologic system is, is interesting in that 90% of the serotonin made in the body, serotonin is one of your primary neurotransmitters for your brain and peripheral nervous system. 90% of that neurotransmitter is made in the endocrine cells that line the gut, 90%. For dopamine, it's 50 some percent. So we've got the majority of neurotransmitters that our brain and peripheral nervous system rely on are being made in our gut lining. So when you consume Roundup, and you consume gluten with it especially, you're gonna get brain fog as one of your first symptoms. Poor concentration, you know, difficulty uh, with your short-term memory, poor sleep quality, poor sex drive. That collapse of the central nervous system is largely because you just lost your neurotransmitter support from the gut. You lost 90% of your serotonin, 50% of the, the dopamine. So you just get this huge collapse of neurotransmitter support. And so again, when we add back Restore and we get the tight junctions back together and the endocrine cells are now intercalated back in a healthy way to the gut lining, now they can go back to production of serotonin and the rest. Interestingly, you know, gut health is obviously a big thrust of, of the education and marketing around Restore. But interestingly, we get testimonials back on a daily basis and nine times out of 10, the gut stuff is kind of secondary. Mostly people are so excited that they can think clearly, that they can remember well and everything else because they are, they are reconstituting very quickly, faster than their microbiome shifts and all that. They're reconstituting their serotonin production, their dopamine production and all that. 
That's huge for literally everything. So what about hormonally? Um, you said that obviously it'll stretch your gut. Does that create a cortisol response? And then now people have elevated cortisol levels throughout every day because of this issue with their gut? Cortisol is probably the least of our problems in this environment. The ones that I'm most concerned about would be like um, growth factors. And so uh, you've got things like endothelial growth factor. You've got things like IGF-1, which is uh, produced by uh, growth hormone that you don't want growth hormone and IGF-1 to be on damaged cells. That's what leads to cancer. Um, another major one is just insulin alone. Let's think of insulin because it's such a common one for us to think about in the, in the exercise physiology. Insulin obviously channels glucose into the muscle for fuel. Uh, glucose is, is really your preferred fuel for the muscle. You can use ketones, you can use other fuels out there, but by and large, you're gonna be using glucose or you're gonna be shunting fatty acids through the glucose pathway, Krebs cycle, etc. And so your, your uh, insulin levels are very important. High insulin levels chronically are what will ha happen from that chronic gut stress. And so as you disrupt the endocrine system of the, and uh, those neuroendocrine markers of the gut lining, and you get this unintelligent absorption of all of the food and water right into your immune system, you get this chronic inflammatory reaction in the gut lining. That chronic inflammation drives insulin levels up. As insulin goes up, interestingly, it has the opposite effect on males and females. It actually drives us to a center point. It makes men more feminine, female at the endocrine system. It makes females more masculine. It screws up the estrogen testosterone effect. And so uh, testosterone will drop in men and you'll see uh, testosterone go up in women as that insulin stress goes crazy. And then progesterone goes to zero in women and screws up their, their kind of feminine cycle as they get stressed at the gut lining. So they'll make this weird shift away from progesterone and estrogen towards a testosterone axis, and the males will, will do the opposite. They'll move towards an estrogen axis away from testosterone under that influence. And so those are just a couple of examples. But you know, ultimately, we could speak to thyroid here. We could talk to aldosterone. We could talk to a whole handful of other, you know, hundreds of other hormones that are affected by gut stress. Um, the gut is interestingly very tied to the bone here. A lot of the, the hormones that we are starting to, to discover are coming out of the bone. We now think that the bone might be the largest endocrine organ on, in, the, in the body in regard to this, the sheer number of, of peptides and hormones that are produced in the bone environment. And I think we're going to find out over the next few years that this relationship between gut bone is going to be a fascinating new frontier uh, for athletes. And, and what we see with athletes is we get this big benefit from uh, weight-bearing percussive exercise to the bone. We get a much better physiologic response to the muscle. Um, and so I think we're going to find out that that has to do with this interplay between gut hormones and bone hormones. Wow. Um, so tying all of that together, how would you structure a diet for an athlete that approached you that is either looking to improve body composition or athletic performance. Like that's their main goal. But obviously I think the goal is always to feel good, have focus, mental clarity and everything along those lines too. How would you structure somebody's diet? Yeah, this used to be challenging, but now it's gotten so easy because this plant-based, uh, you know, phenomenon has really taken over the triathletes and a lot of the bodybuilders and everything else. And so I've been on a number of podcasts with some of the most elite athletes on the planet who are already plant-based vegans. And you don't have to be a strict vegan. I, I like the concept of plant-based where, sure, you can have some fish occasionally and things like that, but 
realize it's almost impossible to find clean meat on the planet today. It's so saturated with chemical. The higher you eat on the food chain, the more toxin you're going to get. Everything from heavy metals and plastics to your herbicides and pesticides. So the lower you eat on the food chain, the less toxin you're going to get. But for the athlete, the last thing in the world you want when, when you're out running or competing is a big wad of meat protein sitting halfway through your small intestine because you ate seven hours ago. And that's right where it would be. And so it's, you're gonna have decreased exercise performance if you're forcing your gut to work because you're shunting blood and oxygen away from muscle to gut still. You want an empty gut to go into uh, a, an exercise state. To achieve that in the fed state, it needs to be a plant-based diet. Plant-based diet will cross your small intestines in 90 minutes versus that 14 hours of your meat protein. And so the, the reason why this vegan fat is racing through the, the uh, competitive environments, and obviously I think it's less for the bodybuilder because the bodybuilder in some ways is more about what the physique looks like than its actual performance. If you're looking at performance athletes, they are very quickly moving away from protein. We're starting to realize that every gram of protein you eliminate, they perform better. And so I would put all of my athletes you know, on a high fat, low protein diet and with complex carbohydrates as your main fuel, especially before workout. So fat and complex carbs are really magical. One of the keys, of course, is, is fasting, right? So intermittent fasting is so powerful uh, in, in changing the way that the body works. And so combining that high fat, uh, low protein, high complex carbohydrate diet with intermittent fasting is probably our gold standard right now. I love it, man. Thank you so much for a wealth of knowledge. I know people are going to take a lot away from all this. Where can everybody find um, Restore? I want to make sure everybody has a chance to get that. And then just obviously, you have a lot of content out there. You've been on a lot of podcasts. So where can everybody find everything that you have to offer? Sure. So uh, Restore is at www.restore4life.com. Restoreforlife.com is Restore. Uh, my educational page, uh, ZachBushMD.com. Um, just got a lot of uh, connections to a lot of my YouTube content and podcasts and stuff like that there. You just go to YouTube, you can Google Zach Bush MD, you're going to find a ton of my lectures and stuff like that online. Um, one of my most popular um, podcasts that I've done recently was my one with Rich Roll. I don't know if you know Rich Roll, but he's one of the, was on Time Magazine as the fittest man in the world a couple years ago. He, he ran five ultra marathons, no, five iron men uh races in a single week um and so he's a real machine of, of an individual and he's totally plant-based fascinating guy to listen to and talk to on his journey as how he got himself into this elite athlete state through a plant-based diet um, but he and i did a very long thorough podcast it's almost two hours long i think but um if you go to rich roll podcast um i think it's actually on the zach bush md website as well now um it's a great spot um Dr. McCullough and others, Dave Asprey has interviewed me. We, there's a good podcast. Dave, Dave Asprey's podcast actually got some of the highest ratings of any of his podcasts ever. So you might want to take a look at that one. Um, that one really gets into some cool esoteric stuff on kind of biophysics and some other stuff that um, is pertinent to the biohackers out there. So those would be some other sources. And, and when are you guys coming out with this documentary? I'm going to be really interested to watch that. Yeah, we're hoping that releases uh, towards the end of this year, fourth quarter of, of 2018, uh, at latest first quarter of next year. But um, it's gonna, it's amazing. Like, uh, I mean, I've been teaching this stuff at nauseum and studying it under the microscope, and I thought I knew the story until I got out 
on these farms. We're filming from Minnesota all the way down to New Orleans at the end of the Mississippi River. It's jaw-dropping what is happening to your food. These, the, the soil is freaking dead. We're, we're really quickly moving back into a dust storm. We're, it's the same dust phenomenon that led to the, to the you know, total loss of crops with the dust bowl in the 1920s and 30s. We're about to relive that. We are losing an enormous amount of topsoil to wind every year in Minnesota now because we have so decimated those soils. So a great documentary. It'll be coming out, Farmer's Footprint. I love it, man. Once again, thank you for coming on the show. All right, guys, that is a wrap. Before I let you go, I just want to give a quick reminder to leave a five-star rating and review. I've been putting a ton of effort into these podcasts, and all I want is for it to grow so I can get bigger and better guests on the show for you to learn even more and get better results completely free. That is my goal with this show is to just spread the word and get more people knowing. So one of the biggest, best things you can do for me is number one, leave a five-star rating and review telling us what you like about the show and helping us grow in the iTunes charts. And the second thing you can do is share this podcast with a friend. The more people who share, listen, subscribe to this show, the bigger it gets, the more it grows, and the more information I can provide to you to get better results. That's the mission with the podcast, guys, and I would love and appreciate it if you can help that mission succeed. All right, guys, I will catch you next time on the Boom Boom Performance Podcast.